All right, let's study God's word. Just when you think you've got ministry figured out, God likes to change things up on you. On his second missionary journey, the Holy Spirit directed Paul away from Asia because God wanted him to spend most of his time in Europe. On his third missionary journey, what we're going to be looking at tonight, most of Paul's time was spent in Asia in the city of Ephesus. That wasn't the only change. What scholars call the third missionary journey is more like an interim pastorate than a pioneering missions effort because uh, Paul was going back to churches that had already been established and was literally pastoring them. God wants you to go on depending upon him day by day, just as you did when you uttered the very first prayer for salvation. If we only do the same things with and for God day in and day out, we tend to begin to trust in ourselves, in our own strength and talent and ability. Nothing kills real ministry more than self-dependence. And so when I or you and any Christian gets to the place where they think, hey, I've got this, this is what I do, um, <clears throat> you, it's going to kill real ministry. It may look good, it may sound good, it may come across all right, but there's no transaction in the spirit because God wants us to depend upon him. It's the only way to reach hearts. If, if God's the one who divides between the soul and the spirit, then we need a total dependence upon him uh, in order to see him accomplish that. Now, most of this third trip, as I said, is spent in Ephesus. Paul had spent a short time in Ephesus on his way back to Antioch from his second missionary journey. This trip, he stayed in Ephesus about three years. Sometimes it's hard to get an exact timeline for um, these things, but <coughs> excuse me, it seems to be about three years. Several remarkable things happened in Ephesus. Paul baptized a dozen of John the Baptist's followers, and then they received the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Unusual miracles occurred in which handkerchiefs and aprons that Paul had used were brought to the sick and they were healed by them, or they were brought to those who were possessed by demons and the demons were exorcised by them. It was in Ephesus during this stay that a group of Jewish exorcists, the seven sons of Sceva, tried to exorcise a demon in Paul's name. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. They go and they, this is a demon-possessed guy, and they say, we cast you out in the name of Paul. Uh, and the demon says, well, Paul I know and Jesus I know, but who are you guys? And he tears them up. He just wipes these guys out. They have to run for their lives naked out of the house. Word of that spread, and believers who were still into the occult repented and brought out their books of magic, and they had a massive bonfire book-burning party uh, there in Ephesus. Later on, the entire city rioted over silversmith Demetrius's loss of business because of people turning to Christ from worshiping the great goddess uh, Diana uh, of the Ephesians, and so they quit buying the idols uh, and it was ruining their trade. And so lot, it was a really exciting time. Lots of interesting, weird things were going on in Ephesus. After leaving Ephesus, Paul went to Macedonia, Illyricum, Greece, and Corinth. Then he headed to Jerusalem through Troas, Asos, Mytilene, Samos, Trogilium, Miletus, Cus, Rhodes, Patara, Tyre, Ptolemais, 
and Caesarea, those of you who are mapping the journeys of Paul. A lot more happened, obviously. You can read the full account. It's in Acts 18.23 through Acts 21.16. So that chunk of uh, the book of Acts is what is called the third missionary journey. What I want to do is see those years from Paul's perspective. He gave us his perspective in two passages of Scripture. One of them is in 1 Corinthians and the other is in 2 Corinthians. And as we read them, we're going to develop a theme from them. And so we're in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verses 30 through 32, where Paul is talking about this time that he spent in the city of Ephesus. And according to him, by his recollection, his perspective was this, 1 Corinthians 15, 30, why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Now, as most of you know, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is an extensive account of the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and of believers from the dead. In this passage, Paul is reminding the believers that he daily risked his life for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the simple argument he's making is, why would I risk my life for the sake of Jesus Christ if there was no resurrection from the dead? I mean, if this is the only life that we have, why do I put my life in daily jeopardy uh, to talk about a resurrected man? And so that's, that's the gist of the context where he's at. It's interesting here, historians make the claim that the phrase, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die, is a summary slogan of the Epicurean philosophy uh, philosophy, uh, of the first century. One of their teachings was that there was no life after death. Thus, while they did argue for moderation, the practical outworking of Epicureanism was to live for that which was pleasurable in this life since it's the only life you'll get. And so they would say, Epicurus would say, you should live in moderation because too much pleasure becomes painful. Even he recognized there's too much of a good thing or, or that people who would get too involved in certain habits, they would become addictions and begin to rule their lives. And so, so it wasn't just a, an amoral philosophy. They argued for moderation, but they definitely said there's no life after life. This is it. Uh, and so you might as well you know, as they used to say, get all the gusto you can right now. Now, why would anyone risk his life if there were no reward in a life after death? He wouldn't. He'd just eat and drink and make merry. And so that's Paul's point. Now, the Epicureans could argue all they wanted, that there was no life after death, but it wasn't after the manner of men. It's interesting Paul uses that phrase, meaning it wasn't what people in their culture actually experienced. They experienced the occult, and they knew there was another realm, a spiritual realm that included angels and demons. Uh, so the Epicureans could go around and say, well, there's, there's nothing but this life, the material world right now, and, and yet we, 
you know, as we were going through some of the things that happened in Ephesus, there was a huge uh, traffic in the occult. There were lots of people demon-possessed. There were sorcerers. There was all kinds of magic and mystical arts uh, which flew in the face of that. So it wasn't the manner of men for their philosophy uh, to make any sense. In the classic film, I'm not recommending it, uh, but uh, The Exorcist, the younger Catholic priest, I, I always got a kick out of this, he didn't believe there was a devil, only psychological illness. He found out the hard way that there is a devil. If you're familiar with that movie, uh, it, it doesn't end pleasantly for him. Uh, and so that's kind of the Epicurean approach to things. As is the only life there is, there's nothing supernatural going on when it was going on all around them. Uh, that's maybe the thought here. Now, Paul gave a perspective on his time in Ephesus. That's what we're getting to. Paul remember it, remembered it as if it was a fight against savage beasts. Even though gladiators did fight beasts and certain individuals were thrown to beasts, it's highly unlikely Paul fought against beasts. He does not recount it along with his other sufferings and hardships when he wrote 2 Corinthians, uh, there in chapter 11, in the middle of the chapter, he gives a list of some terrible things that have happened to him over the years for the sake of Jesus Christ, shipwrecks and beatings and those kinds of things. He mentions nothing really about actually fighting with beasts. And if he had been thrown to the beasts, it would mean he would have lost his Roman citizenship uh, because you, you couldn't really punish a Roman citizen uh, by throwing them to the beasts. Uh, and if that happened, then it was a loss of citizenship. And we know that he still held citizenship when he went before Caesar at a much later date. He must, therefore, have been speaking figuratively of things that happened in Ephesus. Scholars are split over which event or events exactly he was referring to. Some say it was the riot that Demetrius started. But if you read that account, there's no mention of any special danger that Paul was in. I mean, it was a dangerous time, but I don't know that you'd really uh, describe it as being attacked by wild beasts. And so I think it's best to see this as a summary of his time in Ephesus. The whole three years had a I fought with the beasts feeling to it. You know, if he was going to write a uh, on account of his time in Ephesus, the subtitle, you know, Paul in Ephesus, I fought with wild beasts. Now, I ran across one interesting explanation. The religious and cultural context of Ephesus was, as we sort of said, magic and mystery cults and the occult. Paul's ministry there was filled with exorcisms and demonic encounters. In Paul's own letter to the Ephesians, he said, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, certainly that's true everywhere and at all times, but isn't it interesting that Paul, uh, you know, there while there's all these strange exorcisms being attempted by non-Christians and he's being supernaturally used to exorcise demons by people having his apron uh, and all of this demonic encounter, people are burning their books of magic uh, spells and all. It's in Ephesus that he says, hey, we're wrestling not against flesh and blood. There's a supernatural spiritual warfare. There's a world of demons uh, out there, rulers of the principalities and powers that we're up against. 
It could be that by choosing the word beasts, Paul meant these spiritually wicked rulers, the devil and his demons. The word beast appears in Jewish literature as a synonym for an evil spirit or demon. Additionally, evil spirits in magic were often summoned through the images and organs of wild animals. In Daniel and the Revelation, we see beasts used to describe massive spiritual oppression against God's people. And we see the devil described in 1 Peter as what? A roaring lion, a beast seeking someone to devour. Not only was Paul risking his life for the sake of the gospel by facing the persecutions of mere men, he was facing off against demonic powers as well. For the better part of three years, Paul's ministry was dominated by this kind of spiritual warfare. It was the theme of his daily walk. It was the path that Jesus had him on. Uh, What path are you on? That's a good question. It's not always going to be a garden path. It's not always going to be footprints in the sand. It might be a fight with supernatural beasts like Paul was engaged in in Ephesus. Uh, It's interesting, these things. Uh, If you're thinking, well, yeah, that kind of explains what I'm going through right now, uh, just you're going to still go through it exactly the way that you've been approaching it through prayer and reading the word and seeking the Lord. Uh, A lot of times people think, oh, you know, now that I know that there's a demonic presence or a demonic spirit, I need to know the name of that demon and I need to control that demon and I need to go through all this spiritual mumbo jumbo. Uh, Daniel, we mentioned Daniel. Daniel's minding his own business, reading the book of Jeremiah. He's praying realizes that the captivity of Israel is almost over. It's at the end of the 70 years. He's praying about it. And um, he doesn't really get an answer right away to his prayer. When the answer finally comes, the angel Gabriel says, man, I I left a long time ago, but I was hindered by the prince of Persia. And there was a big wrestling thing going on between Gabriel and another demonic presence. And he said, I finally got relieved when Michael was dispatched to help me. And now I'm here to give you, and now I've got to go back and help. But Daniel didn't change any of his strategies. He didn't start a a demon ministry or an exorcism ministry or anything like that. It just, when God opens up that that world to us, it's just to let us know that it exists and, and that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. So we don't need to get off track here and think, oh yeah, that's right, there's, you know, everything that's happening to me is a demonic attack. It's just to say that even in the life of Paul, there were certain times and certain places where different things were occurring. He had different seasons of of, uh, risk in his ministry. And so whatever it is, whatever season that you're in, you'll need to depend solely and completely upon the Lord. And that's what he develops in this next passage. He also discussed this period of his life in 2 Corinthians in chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, where we read, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia. We were burdened beyond measure above strength so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. Now, this passage takes us a little deeper into the mind and heart of the great apostle. While involved in this three-year struggle with beasts, Paul not only believed that he was going to die, but he said, psychologically, I despaired of my own life. 
I mean, you know, this was serious, uh, you know, rubber meets the road kind of ministry. Paul said, we, we, we thought we were going to die. And I despaired of living. Have you ever been spiritually burdened beyond measure above strength so that you despaired even of your life? If you have, you probably haven't told anybody because that kind of honesty makes us, quite, honest, quite frankly, uncomfortable as Christians. We think we must rebuke it. And yet here is Paul, a veteran Christian, missionary and pastor, arguably, as far as what's recorded in history, the greatest Christian that ever lived. Uh, you know, that's a silly thing to say. But from one point of view, I've heard that said of Paul, and, and certainly, you know, he's, he's at least willing to say at one point in his own writings, follow me the way I follow Christ. I mean, that's, I know it's under the inspiration of the Spirit, but it was still true. I mean, that's pretty bold. I like to tell people to follow Christ the way I'm trying to follow Christ. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I don't, you know, and so, but Paul, so this great apostle, he says, I thought I was going to die in Ephesus. It was so intense. And when I didn't think I was going to die, I despaired of life. I sort of wanted to die. In the movies, when the hero is confronted by some beast, he or she is always able to come up with a clever strategy to defeat the brute. That's one of my favorite scenes in fantasy movies. I was thinking of, uh, I think it must be Return of the Jedi. Remember when Luke gets thrown into the pit and there's that giant creature in there? I don't know. It probably has a name. Somebody can text it to me if you'd like, but that creature, and, it's, and there's all bones of all these people that the creature has killed, and he has to use his Jedi skills to overcome that creature, and he finally, I think he jams a bone in its mouth, and, and then he ends up chopping its head off or something in the, I don't know, it's crazy, but, you know, the hero always has some fantastic way of defeating the beast or the dragon or uh, the centaur, the minotaur, whatever it might be. How did Paul deal with it? Paul said, there's nothing I could do. I was defeated. I was up against the devil and demons, principalities and powers, rulers of darkness. How do you think I did? <laughs> you know, just, you know, if you come home and say, hey, I went, to a, I went to an MMA fight at the palace and they were one man short. And they told me they'd give me 10 grand to get in the cage with uh, one of their fighters. Well, how'd you do? Well, how do you think I did? In the original Spider-Man movie, he did great, remember? Because he had amazing Spidey skills. But they, Paul said, yeah, I, I, I didn't have any Spidey senses. I didn't have any uh, Jedi mind tricks. I wanted to die. That's how I was doing, if you want to know the truth. So that's how he dealt with it. He admitted defeat, despairing of life. Then he could be delivered from death, he says. That was to, to him, it was kind of like a key moment. He said, I realized there was nothing I could do and that I was going to die, and I even wanted to die, and then God gave me another breath. He says God delivered him from death in three ways. He delivered him from so great a death, meaning eternal death, and he does deliver us moment by moment as we depend upon him. And he continues to deliver us all the days that he has granted to us to live in these bodies. Think of it this way. 
Paul was on the front lines of ministry. He was, he was the cutting edge. You know, we joke about being on the cutting edge. He was the cutting edge. Even as a mature veteran missionary pastor, he despaired of life. His resolve for it wasn't to pray more or give more or serve more or take a sabbatical. He didn't say he was weak on account of not keeping up with his devotions. He said, I was fighting the devil and the devil would have crushed me because he's pretty powerful. And it got to me and I was despairing of life and I couldn't even take my next breath without relying on the resurrection power of God. Do we believe, do we really believe we cannot take our next breath without God? I don't mean do we believe that God is the one who is sustaining our lives, the one who knows the number of our days. I I think we would all say that. Obvious, that's obvious. God knows the number of your days. Uh, He knows the exact moment of your death. He he knows how many times your heart is going to beat. I mean, if he can know the number of hairs on your head, uh, not just count them, but know them, you know, each one of them throughout your lifetime. Easier for some of you now than for others, but... He, he knows all of those things. So we believe that, but do we believe that we have absolutely no strength to minister apart from the breath of the Holy Spirit? That's, I think that's what Paul is, is telling us tonight. I dare say we think we have some things figured out that we can handle some things ourselves. What I mean is that I still think I have some strength, some spiritual strength of my own to do things for the Lord. I think I can just take a deep breath and stay in the game. Paul understood he had the breath knocked out of him and he needed uh, input, he needed air from the Holy Spirit. I'm not sure I'm making sense even to myself. What I am sure of is that this period of Paul's life was a season of learning total dependence upon the Lord. And so Paul said, I mean, he said it, not me, he said, we had the sentence of death. We dis- I despaired of life. We fought against beasts, and there was no trickery. There was no way out, but God sustained us. I depended upon the Lord, and amazing things happened. In the midst of that dark, wicked place, uh, God was casting demons out of individuals, and, and he was... Uh, destroying the occult industry, and he was destroying the idol worship as Paul learned to depend upon him. And so God used a season of spiritual warfare for Paul, a season of beast fighting, to knock the wind out of him so he could take the breath of the Spirit. If you are God's beloved, he will use a season in your life to do just that. Because all of us, I think, feel that we have something to offer God. It's not that we're not precious to him. It's not that he doesn't love us. That's not what I'm talking about. Of course, we are and he does. But when it comes to ministry, when it comes to helping people, when it comes to anything, it has to be the Lord doing it through us. And in order for it to be the Lord, I have to understand that I can't do any of it and that all I can do is get in the way. I can offer the Lord my mouth or my vocal cords or different things, but, you know, there's nothing that I can say or that I can do uh, that is going to uh, help. Uh, I need to be totally and utterly dependent upon Him. Uh, And I think that's, you know, that's usually the testimony of uh, ancient old saints of the Lord. You know, they just 
you see these guys and they physically, they're a wreck, falling apart, but spiritually there's a dependence upon the Lord and God uses them just in a mighty way. And so uh, if you think you have some strength, uh, you don't. Uh, Give that over to the Lord. If you're in something right now that's beating you up, uh, admit it. Quit trying to fight it yourself. Give it over to the Lord uh, and let him take care of it. He wants to do wonderful things, miraculous things. Uh, You know, Paul, people, you know, they get off on this thing about his handkerchiefs and his aprons. I, I think he was just, he was just, you know, desperate and God said, you know, Paul, I can, I can use even things that you've touched to minister to people. And it was more for Paul uh, than for anybody else, for, for, for the Lord to just show him his grace and his power at that time in his life. And so uh, if you're going through something, hang in there. Uh, let the Lord use you and uh, just depend on his breath. Amen.